is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, at this point, if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Psalm 131 now. The passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. And good morning once again. Welcome to Trinity Grace. So glad that you're with us today, especially if you're a guest here or joining us online. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up our series on the Psalms. Over the course of the summer, we have mentioned that the Psalms are a treasure for God's people because they give us words to speak as we follow Jesus in this fallen world. In the Psalms, we find joy, thanksgiving, doubt, depression, anger, sadness, confidence. You can find words in the Psalms to match any experience in your life. And in the Psalms, these emotions are all wrapped up in the action of worship. They're all wrapped up and and brought before the Lord in worship. In the Psalms, we see that we can engage in worship with our emotions. We learn that we can enter God's presence no matter what we're experiencing in our lives. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 131. It's a psalm that's known as a psalm of ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are 15 Psalms that stretch from Psalm 120 to 134, and they're special because they were Psalms that were sung as God's people traveled to the great annual feasts that were held in the city of Jerusalem. Three times a year, the Israelites would make their way to Jerusalem for national feasts. And as they traveled, as they made their way to that great city together, the Psalms of Ascent were like their road trip playlist. They were songs for the journey. And these Psalms of Ascent are helpful for us. They can give us words to speak as we journey towards our heavenly Jerusalem, so to speak. As we make our way with one another toward our destination as followers of Jesus, we can turn to these psalms for our road trip playlist. And you know, if you've ever taken a journey or spent time on a road trip, there are different seasons and experiences. You have the excitement of beginning the journey, the monotony of miles passing under the tires. You've got the anticipation of getting closer. On any journey, you've got highs and lows, you've got boredom and excitement, you've got expected stops and unexpected detours maybe. And it's the same when we talk about the journey of following Jesus in life. And Psalm 131 is a timely song for the season that we currently find ourselves in on our journey. Let's turn our attention to this beautiful psalm, a psalm that invites us to embrace a certain disposition that just might bring freedom to your heart this morning. You follow along as I read Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. We just read one of the shortest Psalms in the Bible. It's one of the easiest Psalms to read, but its lesson is one of the hardest to learn. And if you're like me, you read this Psalm with its invitation to step back, to be still, 
to cultivate a calm and a quiet soul, and you're intrigued. There's something about that picture that's beautiful and attractive to a group of people who feel so stretched thin emotionally and relationally and spiritually. And it comes as no surprise when I say that the past few months have been a difficult season for a number of different reasons. And if you were to take stock of your heart this morning, right in the middle of this challenging season, I wonder what words you'd use to describe your heart and soul. If you had to write down three words right now that accurately describe the state of your heart, what words would you write down? Well, I can imagine what kind of words we might use if given enough time to properly reflect this morning. I imagine we'd hear words like sad, lost, confused, scared, depressed, trapped, hurried, overwhelmed, exhausted. I think these are words that we might use to describe our hearts even in normal times, really. We're normally exhausted, normally confused, normally overwhelmed. How much more in the challenging circumstances that we find ourselves in over the past few months? Take what's normal and multiply it, and that's where most of us are on this last Sunday of July. Think for a minute about normal life, if you can still do that and remember what it was like. Remember how hurried we were with kids' activities and school and sports? Remember how stretched thin we were with work and projects and social gatherings? Remember the decisions that had to be made? The normal relational tensions we experienced, the health concerns we carried, the bickering we endured from all sides of the political spectrum? And that was normal life. Fast forward a few months and here we are. And I'd venture to guess that your heart is more overwhelmed and exhausted than it's ever been. We're stressed when we think about tough financial decisions that we might have to make as families. We're fearful when we wonder if we'll have our job this time next year. We're concerned for our children and how this season threatens to affect them socially and emotionally in ways that we can't yet understand. We're sad that relationship with our family is strained under the weight of so much time together. What should be joyful often is not joyful. We're confused about how to love and care for our friends and neighbors. We're disappointed at missing important life events and vacations. It's a tough season. And if that weren't enough to overwhelm you and exhaust you, if you needed more to worry about this morning, just surf on over to your social media platform of choice. Do a little scrolling and feel your heart rate begin to rise. Or flip on the news and prepare to be overwhelmed with more information in 30 minutes than you were created to handle in a week. Should schools open or not? Should we wear masks or not? And add all to that the fact that we're 100 days from a national election. I don't think I need to belabor the point, although I likely already have. We're feeling the fatigue, the exhaustion, the confusion. The journey can be difficult, and we're certainly experiencing that in new ways over the past few five months. And I think this psalm, a psalm for the journey of life, offers us some encouragement this morning. This psalm invites us to experience something that we all long for in this season. It offers the possibility of a calm and quiet soul. 
a heart that hopes deeply in God alone for rescue and renewal and refreshment. This psalm shows us that we can experience a calm and quiet soul even when circumstances around us are hectic and overwhelming. And what we see from David, the author of this psalm, is that a calm and quiet soul comes as we relinquish the illusion of control, as we embrace our limitations, and as we trust in God to give us what's best. We know that David's the author of this psalm, and if you remember, David was the king of Israel a man who had lots of power and influence, a man who could have whatever he wanted, a man who was used to making things happen in his world. And what we see from verse one of this psalm is that he doesn't rely on his control or influence. He doesn't take advantage of his power. David knew that he was a man under a higher authority. David knew that he was like the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. And we implicitly see this in David's humble words. This is a psalm that's full of humility. King David writes in verse 1, My heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. Now what does David mean with these phrases? Well, by saying that his heart is not lifted up, David's saying that his heart isn't proud. It's not lifted up. He's confessing that he's poor in spirit. He's in desperate need of God to look after and care for him. And by saying that his eyes are not raised too high, David is saying that he's not looking down on other people. He doesn't set himself above other people where he can look down upon them. In other words, David is saying that he doesn't overestimate himself and he refuses to undervalue other people. We also see that David writes, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And this is another surprising thing to hear the king say, to hear a man with so much knowledge and power write. What does he mean here? Well, we can't say that ambition is a bad thing. We can't say that influence is a bad thing. We were created to exert influence and have an impact in this world. David isn't being lazy here. He's not throwing his hands in the air. He's not saying that we shouldn't ask big questions that we should take shortcuts, that we should stick our heads in the sand. In these words, David is speaking of a desire that goes beyond what God has for him at that moment. In other words, David is not seeking to engage in ways that are beyond his area of expertise or influence, beyond the sphere of influence in which God had presently placed him. What we see from David in verse 1 could be boiled down into one word. And that word is humility. And it can be hard to define humility. The word comes from the word hummus, which means from the earth or from the soil, something that's low. And it's someone that's lowly, the humble. The Oxford Dictionary defines humility as a modest or low view of one's own importance. And while it's not a perfect definition of biblical humility, it's a good start. But we get a better definition of humility as we look at the life of Jesus. He is a walking picture of humility. As one who gave up his rights and privileges, he didn't grasp on to power, but instead he freely gave it up, taking on the form of a servant so that others might experience life. C.S. Lewis said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. 
And Lewis also says that to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Tim Keller says something similar when he writes, there's nothing more relaxing than humility. I also like how another pastor puts it when he says, there aren't many problems in your life that humility won't fix. It's a characteristic that can bring freedom and peace. How does David get to this place of freedom and peace in his life? How can we experience more humility in our own lives? Well, we grow in humility or what Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 calls poverty of spirit as we take a good hard look at who God is, as we know his laws, his character, his mighty works, and then turn and take a good hard look at who we are. As we know our weaknesses and failures and our proclivities to sin, an accurate view of God alongside an accurate view of ourselves will leave you humble. And did you notice where humility leads? It leads David to experience a calm and quiet soul. The language David uses in verse 2 takes on the idea of smoothing out a field so that you can plant seed. David has smoothed out his soul. And it's like the calm surface of a lake. That's the picture we should have in mind. Humility can bring that kind of experience to our hearts. David goes on to describe the peace humility brings by comparing himself to a weaned child. Like a weaned child, he says, with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, what does that mean? Well, a weaned child is the picture of a fully satisfied child. One who doesn't cry out with every need in an uncontrollable way. Why? Because a weaned child knows that they're going to get what they need from their loving mother. They've learned that lesson. In this verse, God is likened to a mother like he is in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 66. God is like a mother who takes care of her children's needs. And the weaned child knows it can trust its mother to provide. And the weaned child knows that and knows it's going to get satisfaction. David's soul learned that it didn't need to fret for sustenance. He's through the difficult weaning process and now he trusts God to care for him. This is like David's experience with God. And it can be our experience with God too. And I'd imagine it's an attractive picture in this overwhelming, hectic, uncertain season of life. Who doesn't want more quiet and calm of soul? Who doesn't want to express deeper trust in God this morning? Who doesn't want to hope in the one who promises to work all things out for our ultimate good? And one of the ways that we can apply this passage to our own lives, I think, is to aspire to live a hidden life of love for God and love of your neighbor, the ones that you actually see and speak to in your life. A few weeks ago, Rachel and I watched A Hidden Life, which is a movie about a man named Franz in 1940s Austria who refused to swear allegiance to Hitler during World War II. In the movie, it shows Franz's resolve in the face of intense pressure to simply speak the words of allegiance. And people through the movie are trying to convince Franz that they're just words, Simply speak the words of allegiance to Hitler. You can pledge allegiance and not really mean it 
is what they convince him to do, but his integrity won't let him do that. And it's really a beautiful movie. You might even call this one a film because it's so beautiful. And one of the tactics his antagonists keep coming back to through the film is asking Franz, what difference do you think your integrity is gonna make? Do you really think that you're changing the course of anything by holding your convictions and refusing to swear allegiance to Hitler? All you're hurting is yourself and your family. Do you think anyone's going to hear about your bravery? Do you think this is going to rise to the top level? Well, Franz stays firm in his convictions and through his actions, he has a significant impact on the people he comes into contact with, his friends, his family, his fellow prisoners even his enemies. They're all touched in meaningful ways because Franz decided to live a quiet, calm integrity. The film is based on a true story and it highlights the beautiful simplicity of living a hidden life, one that is focused on people and events that you can actually have an impact on. And it forced me to reflect how many times my emotional energy and my attention is focused towards things that I can do nothing about. Things that are outside my sphere of influence, so to speak. Things that we might label with David as too great and too marvelous for me. Look, there's a freedom that we experience when we come to that place, when we embrace our limitations and recognize that we can only influence those people we actually know that it's best to concern ourselves with things we can actually influence. And that's a place of humility. It's a place of valuing other people and appropriately estimating yourself. And it brings so much peace and joy to your life and heart when you embrace that place. When you can be realistic and rest content in the small corner of God's kingdom that he has called you to tend. In hopes of being practical this morning, and hopefully not offending anyone, I want to highlight an impediment that often keeps me from loving God and loving the neighbors that we know and see on a daily basis. And that impediment is media in general. Media in general. And when I say media, I have general things like social media and news outlets in mind. And I want to say from the very beginning that media isn't wrong or evil in and of itself, but I don't think you need to be convinced that our use of media can do harm to our souls, can keep us from living within our limits, can rob us of a calm and quiet heart. Some of you might know that a normal person spends an average of three hours per day on social media, and it can be a great place to stay connected, to share life with distant friends and relatives, but you also know that it can be soul-deadening place. It can be a place where love for neighbor is not even a consideration, where you're enticed to occupy yourself with things that are sometimes too marvelous and too great, as David would say. Some of you may have heard the news this past week about Rachel Hollis. She's a Christian author most popular for her bestseller entitled Girl, Wash Your Face. She's also what some would call a social media influencer, And she announced that she was separating from her husband this past week. I haven't read any of her work. I haven't read her book. I'm unfamiliar with her on social media. But I did stumble upon an article that was sent my way this week on Mockingbird.com that touched on Hollis and how she shared her news with the world. 
And in this article, there's a quote from Rachel Hollis announcing her divorce on social media. And in that quote, while announcing her divorce to her fans, she prefaces her announcement by asking if people would allow her to be human for a moment. And I just thought that request, please let me be human for a moment, was so telling and a little bit sad. It implicitly says that everything else that she posted wasn't really human. It wasn't really her being herself. In other words, she wasn't allowed to post her flaws or her questions or her weaknesses, only allowed to post an image of strength and certainty. And in the article I read this past week, this is how the author comments on this pressure we all experience on social media. She says, No one is actually honest in their social media accounts. We share only the parts that are quirky and relatably messy. Just enough, not too much. Too much makes you look sad or desperate. That does not an Instagram influencer make. Projecting a certain image of yourself is an art form that not everyone's good at. She goes on, I struggle with pointing the sword of righteousness at her too much, talking about Hollis, mostly because I have my own social media that's produced, albeit with far less production value. My brain certainly analyzes how photographs of my adorably cute children will play to my audience. Who will love this super fun and deeply edited image of our family life? Or more sinisterly, who will see this and envy me? Here's the payoff paragraph, which ends her article. For so many reasons, we do not know what we do. We are in the 1920s of cigarettes when it comes to social media. Everyone's got a light cough, but we're convinced it just must be pollen season. Wash your hands, girl, it's the cigarettes. I wonder how our social media use or our copious amounts of the news outlet of our choice or our desire to be right in online discussions is doing harm to our souls. Dividing the church of Jesus Christ, keeping us from a quiet and calm heart of hope and trust in God. And it reminds me of a prayer from a collection of prayers entitled Every Moment Holy. And it's specifically a prayer for those flooded by too much information that I'm thinking about. And this is a portion of that prayer. It says, in a world so wired and interconnected, our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief, O Lord, than we can rightly consider, of more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, of more hostility, hatred, horror, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. When the cacophony of universal distress unsettles us, remind us that we are but small and finite creatures, never designed to carry the vast abstractions of great burdens. For our arms are too short and our strength is too small. Justice and mercy, healing and redemption are your great labors. You have many children in many places around the globe. Move each of our hearts to compassionately respond to those needs that intersect our actual lives. That in all places your body may be actively addressing the pain and brokenness of this world. Each of us liberated and empowered by your spirit to fulfill the small part of your redemptive work assigned to us. That sounds a lot like what David says 
when he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. And David ends his psalm with an encouragement in verse three. He says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He invites us to follow his example and hope in God. David invites us to place our hope in the only one who can calm and quiet our souls. You and I, we tend to think that other things will calm and comfort, but they can't. The Bible constantly invites us, reminds us to hope in the Lord because nothing else can provide the stillness our souls crave for any length of time. Yet we're prone to hope in so many other things besides the Lord. We're prone to hope in our health, to hope in our bank accounts and portfolios, to hope in our expertise, to hope in our planning and scheduling, to hope in the November election, to hope in our gifts and talents. And those things are not grand enough to bear the weight of our hope. As we hope on those things, our soul will never be quiet and calm. A quiet and calm soul only happens as we hope in the Lord, the one who promises to never let us down, to always care for us in ways that are best. Look, like I mentioned before, I imagine the idea of a calm and quiet heart is attractive. But it's hard because everything in our lives encourages us to speak louder, to get busier, to engage in every argument. But as we look at this psalm, and more importantly, as we look at the life of Jesus, we come to understand that isn't what God wants for us. It's not normally how he works. God actually encourages the opposite because he wants us to live with peace that only he can bring. And it's counterintuitive to our experience in this world. But God works most powerfully through humility. He works most profoundly through quiet and calm hearts. He works best with those who know their deep need and place their hope in him. It's how God works. How do we know that? Well, look at Jesus. It's the kind of life we see Jesus live when he came to visit this world. In the Gospels, we see David's greater son, Jesus, inhabit the qualities of this psalm, Psalm 131, as he walked the planet. He didn't come with power or great influence. He didn't come with any kind of flash or beauty. Jesus didn't seek out power. In fact, he gave power up. Jesus didn't hang on to control. He knew that his father controlled all things. Jesus did not defend himself. When he stood before Pilate, he could have made a defense. He refused to do it. He didn't shout louder when accused. He entrusted himself to God's care. And he did this all for the life of the world. He lived this quiet and calm life of obedience for you and me. And think about the humility demonstrated by Jesus, the way he loved God and loved his neighbor perfectly in a quiet kind of way. I know I've mentioned it before, but I like how one author put it when he said this. At first glance, Jesus's resume is rather simple. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. Nonetheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. And as we walk with Jesus, we'll learn this posture of humility more and more. 
Hopefully we'll come to believe that this posture of humility and quiet trust is the way God works most profoundly as we seek to love God and to love our neighbor. And we'll experience the calm and quiet heart that we really desire and that God wants to give to us. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you've come to rescue us. Thankful for the way that because of who you are and what you promised to do, we can rest and we can trust in you fully. We pray this morning that you would continue to increase our trust in you, continue to show us how we can practice calm and quiet hearts as we simply rest in your presence. We thank you that because of your work, we can rest and we can do that. And we pray now that you would meet us at this table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.